Hey listeners, welcome back to another episode of Immigrantly. I feel like I don't introduce myself as often. So here you go. My name is Sadia Khan. I'm your host. Could it really be almost August? Summer is officially upon us and what typically is barbecues, the scent of sunscreen and melted popsicles may not be the exact same this year. I have a love-hate relationship with summer. Having grown up in Pakistan, I don't really like summer, but my kids are obsessed. But this summer I am also getting used to the new normal. And I am not talking about quarantine. I am referring to semi-quarantine as I call it because look, the reality is that social distancing is still encouraged. and recommended so how do we decide how much we go out i honestly i'm not sure how much i should go out i haven't met my friends in months and to be honest i am not sure when i will be comfortable meeting them on a regular basis i think this state of uncertainty as i see it is calling on us to get creative tap into our imagination and venture outside our comforts Today's guest could very well be that source of inspiration. She does it all. Meetha Halhasan is a multi-hyphenated career woman and an activist. She writes, she teaches, she's a historian, she's a yogi and a reporter, and the list goes on. Her journey is as fascinating as her bold sense of purpose, and along the way, she may even teach us a few things about artistry vision and hopefully healing let's dive in you can't kneel that's disrespectful to the flag you can't resist your domination with burning up buildings that's violent but again locking up people taking them away from their families for decades starving them putting them in areas of food deserts making them vulnerable to unemployment limiting their access to good quality healthcare that's not violent thank you so much for coming on the show and i'm so excited we are finally doing this yes 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 it's happening it is happening but i am a bit nervous i mean look at your resume meetha i am so impressed it's quite impressive thank you i've been working since i've been 8 years old so i t- tell folks i'm due for retirement at my age right now <laughs> so before we delve into different aspects of the kind of work that you've done i want to talk about blm i want to talk about your research on other things like decolonizing women's bodies you've talked about cowrie shells there there is so much to unpack but i want to start with rami because i recently binge watched it both seasons and i loved it and i know you are one of the writers on the show it has gotten incredible reviews for being like fresh and compelling how did you get pulled into this project and where do you draw inspiration from yeah so much to say about all of that i'm really grateful to be part of rami's writing team and to be a part of what i've called his dramaturg 
<laughs> for his work for a, probably a decade now. So I met Rami when he was 19. At mm. that time, he was taking acting classes, improv classes, living in Jersey, working in New York. I think he was still in college at that point, too. I met mm. him at this convening, and we were really the only two Arabs in the room. So we <laughs> gravitated towards each other. And then we decided to hang out and learn about the work that both of us have been doing and then just our outlook in life in general. He eventually gets a gig at on Nick at Night, moves to Los Angeles, and I start hanging out with him. Mm. And after that period, he started to do stand-up comedy early on. I was there. I could recite his set for folks verbatim. So when he did his HBO feelings, mm. one hour special, I pretty much knew a lot of those jokes. But I also was more than just at the seat watching him in the clubs. I was giving him my notes and my commentary afterwards if there were jokes that might benefit from a little bit more nuance or mm. be a little historically rooted, then we would talk about it and he would actively request my feedback. And mm. then that culminated, not culminated, but that was part of the drive towards him pulling me in when he was writing his pilot. I mean, Rami and I are friends. So mm. we've been friends for a long period of time. While he was writing his pilot, I was writing my dissertation. We'd go to coffee shops together. He would have me look over some of the new no the the new draft, and I would give him my feedback. And then his pilot got greenlit, got picked up. And at that point, he wanted to pull me in as a consultant. It wasn't really clear what my title would be, but I was just going to give feedback when needed. But at that point, being the academic that I am, I said to him, hey, I don't really know how these writers' rooms work. I'm not in Hollywood, although I'm born and raised in <laughs> Los Angeles. What if... I develop a syllabus for you based on the themes that you want to hit this season and beyond. Yeah. And we could talk about what you read weekly. So I pretty much created a personalized seminar for him so that he could go in equipped yeah. into his room. Wow. You know what I really like about the show is that it is outside terrorist, martyr, Muslim tropes. Yep. That we see on TV all the time. And the show itself has this raw honesty and unapologetic depiction of Muslim experiences around it. But having said that, in my opinion, and this is how I see it as a viewer, the show does not claim to represent 1.2 billion Muslims, yes. right? Yes. Which is extremely important. Like as a South Asian Muslim who grew up in Pakistan, I can relate to some aspects of it. But I'm also aware that there are some nuances that are depicted, uh, which may not be my story. Yet I see people criticizing it for putting women in boxes and criticizing it for some of its narratives. What do you say to those critics? I would say that when there is a series of characters that emerge on mainstream television, I hate using this term, but for the first time, hmm. that we are going to be projecting and imposing everything we are and all our feelings into every way that it speaks. Especially mm. since there is an urge from a 
entertainment media standpoint to frame what Rami is doing as the first. Clearly, we've right. had characters that have been Muslim, that have been Arab, but we haven't had the opportunity to see a family that, especially I'm going to just narrow it down to the specificity of what he is trying to show through a universal story, which is this is an Egyptian Muslim mm -hmm. family in Jersey and all those categories matter. But he's using that specificity and harnessing it to tell a story that is about a universal journey with faith. Now, yeah. I see Christian African immigrants say they relate so deeply to this story because yeah. of the conversation around faith, the dynamics within the family, and even some of the stuff that we talk about in season two around jealousy and the evil eye. So right. it's not exclusive <laughs> to Muslims, but that is a major theme. And because there is a lacuna, there is such a gap in our stories in a mainstream capacity, we foist all that we are onto him. And yeah. he said something really interesting. I'm paraphrasing right now. He probably said it a lot better with so much more incredible comedic timing. But he said something to the effect of that he was donating his body to uh, Muslim science <laughs> so that they could um, be able to just throw the critiques, but to also know that with the success of Rami is the opening of more and more doors. Yeah. And with the way that he's trying to tell this narrative, introducing characters like a um, sister and a mother's point of view, whole episodes with the limited real estate that he has of mm. 10 episodes per season, about 30 minutes each, introducing finally, you know, Black Muslim characters and exposing the anti-Blackness in the Arab American community, mm. exposing the people in our community that are racist, that are homophobic, mm. and then dealing with the depth of where that comes from. These aren't just caricatures they are full characters and even his friends although it's a posse of men represent different relationships to faith practice hmm. to piety so there is if you decide to honestly engage it different types of people that are in our community they're not everybody they are a frustrated headscarf wearing mother um, who finds somebody at the mosques and then commits Zina. Those are mm. real people. Yeah. We know these folks who exist in our lives. But also he can't do everything. And he shouldn't have to do everything. If we feel like there is something missing, we should tell our own stories. But mm. then I'll, I'll pull the curtain a little bit too. What Rami is doing that is so revolutionary and very different from every other depiction um, that we've seen around Muslims is he is very much bringing Muslims in the producing of this. So exactly. to have a room that is majority Muslim in Hollywood writing the story <laughs> is incredibly rare. When yeah. we were talking about the show Homeland, which revolves around so many oh premises of Muslims, they don't have Muslim writers. Yeah. They have consultants 
And what Rami's been able to do, bringing me, um, other folks who've never had an opportunity to write in Hollywood, would have had a difficult time to put our foot through the door, is he's creating an ecosystem of Muslim creatives in the space that now have an opportunity to do so much more and to position and create and produce our own projects. So this little show that could, that is getting critical acclaim, is also doing the work of hopefully producing more and more of our stories. And Mita, to show's credit, it does bring magnifying glass to these issues, but then lets audiences decide like without being judgmental, right? Because in the past, we've seen Muslim characters where, as I said, they are either martyr or terrorist. They are facilitating a protagonist within that story. And they are always shade of black and white, Mm -hmm. right? In this story, we see so many characters that are on like a spectrum of gray, even with the mother, sister, Rami himself, And that's what I really liked about the show, because there are some aspects of Mesa, the character's life that I can relate to. And I know maybe in another 10, 15 years, I could relate to it more, right? This show does speak to nuances of being a typical millennial, someone who doesn't really stand out by looks or affiliates, but is discovering different facets of his identity, including his religious identity. So I want to talk a little bit about that. Where do you see yourself in this spectrum, this sphere um, of faith and spirituality or religion, as we call it? That's a big question. And I do want to underscore what you just said before I move to my answer. I think that's the brilliance of the show is it is showing you the interior life of a character, the depths of their vulnerability. And what also Rami says, the difference between what people want to be and what they actually are Mm -hmm. and how to reconcile those worlds. This is a deep exploration in the psychology of what it means to strive for something better Mm -hmm. and contend with the limitations of the moment which is a very spiritual quest, Hmm. one that I deeply identify with. And I appreciate you being able to see that intervention that he is making in the show with all the characters. Hmm. You know, we we start to get the backstory in most of their lives, and it's hopefully going to be continued. Thankfully, we're renewed for a third season now. Yeah, congratulations. Um, (laughs) Thank you. Yeah, I would say there's... For my own journey, I've had such ebbs, flows, projections in other <laughs> dimensions, uh, multi within the multiverse, I guess you could say. It's, it's not something that's been linear. I yeah. really prefer to think about my journey with faith, spirituality as something that is cyclical and happens on different planes. So I was raised very mechanically or mm-hmm. with a mechanical understanding of Islam. Right. And some folks have called this cultural Muslims or cultural Islam, where there is a conflation of some sort of brown culture <laughs> with Islam, right? Like Desi or Arab or any, any other ones that you can pick from the spectrum without really understanding the difference or the separation or the hybridity of mm. them. Mm. And I actually grew up with an aunt and uncle who were 
very much practicing. Um, and so I got influenced to, through hanging out with them and, and my cousins, their children, to learn how to pray. They gave me a Barbie doll when I learned how to pray. <laughs> <laughs> um, also, although they, they did have a mechanical aspect to uh, Islam and a questionable reward system, I think my brother got a telescope, which in retrospect was a bigger win. <laughs> um, they, they did introduce me to aspects of Islam that had within them a reflection on the spiritual work that happens, mm. but that wasn't part of the core the anchor of how I was taught Islam. It was a, a zero sum game of, of sins and blessings mm. or doing good halal and haram, right? Exactly. Um, and, and it goes back to what you were saying, uh, even within the representation schema, that binary of good Muslim, bad Muslim. Mm. It's something we have internalized too. And we can, there's so much to talk about in terms of the effect of colonialism in, in imposing this good, bad binary yeah. that, that is, I mean, it's a much longer discussion, but is very much influenced by the Catholic Church's understanding of being born with sin and trying to return to innocence. And we don't have those concepts in Islam. We don't, absolutely. Yeah, we have more of a notion that the human is forgetful. Mm. And so we have to do the work of remembering. And that's what recitation, chanting names, prayer does, fasting does, is remembering where we came from mm. in terms of a divine source. So because I was taught such a mechanical version, when I end up going to college and get introduced to existentialists, nihilists, Sartre, Nietzsche, because of course, when you take a Western philosophy class in college, <laughs> and it's not even called Western philosophy, it's just called philosophy. <laughs> Um, you're only introduced to Western thinkers and especially yeah. Western men from the 19th and 20th century. That's absolutely it. So at that point, I become an atheist and even sign up for the Atheist Association of America. Huh. And uh, eventually, when I moved to New York for my graduate work and start reading Malcolm X's work, the autobiography of Malcolm X completely transformed my life. And then that sent me on a quest to learn everything I can from the seat of that great ancestor, that great sheikh that we have, mm. who continues to unfold his lessons onto us. That's when I start my toba. That's when I start my return back to Islam mm. and an Islam that is much more connected to the spiritual essence of the field of what we call a way of life, not just a religion. Mm. So that has been part of my journey and I continue to learn more and more. And more recently, I've been very interested in the centuries of work of concealing the divine feminine and mm. also mm. the women within our faith tradition who were incredible contributors and teachers to the men that we can reference, but we don't know the female teachers that did mm. the work to train them. So that's been more of my work in this moment. And, and that's incredible because I, for one, would be so interested in knowing more about role of females in Islam, because we don't see that. As you pointed out, there is a lot of focus 
on male narratives and versions of it. But I want to go back to something that you just said about Malcolm X and in the wake of George Floyd's murder and how things have panned out, I have been trying to do some work as an ally or trying to be an ally to the Black community. And I started watching Malcolm X's interviews, his speeches. And Meta, what blew me away was the relevance of what he was saying in the 1950s and 60s and how incredibly relevant it is right now from police brutality to white supremacy feeding off of anti-Black racism to how laws, mere existence of laws, um, doesn't do anything to ensure an equitable society. So I am so impressed with his work. But I've also noticed that Malcolm X is sometimes, um, his ideology is deemed as violent. Um, Do you think if he were alive today, Given all that's happening, given all that we're seeing, he would have felt vindicated? Let me deconstruct this accusation of violence for Mm. a second around Malcolm. Malcolm never instilled Mm. or prescribed violence in the way that we frame him to be a uh, rabble-rousing firebrand. But what he did say which felt violent to a white supremacist system is that if you attack us, we will defend ourselves by any means necessary. And at this moment, he's also watching Mm. defense by colonized peoples in Africa, Mm. in Southeast Asia, in quote unquote Middle East, and Mm. how these folks are getting their liberation through standing up and defending themselves. This is the case of the Algerian Revolution in 1962. This is the case of the Mau Mau resistance to the British in Kenya. This Mm. is the ongoing case he pointed to in terms of anti-apartheid in South Africa. And he wasn't, unfortunately, alive um, when the eventual end to apartheid happens in the 1990s. Mm. Um, This is the case that he continued to see as groups of people were decolonizing from their former oppressors. And so what he's watching, even in some of his later speeches, is is the bloodiness that happens, but also talking about the violence of maintaining a system of oppression. Mm-hmm. So for example, he what he mentions is you are... You, you send our people to be violent in Korea. You're violent in Korea. They were, the U.S. was at war with Korea. You're violent in Vietnam. We come back here and you say, turn the other cheek. Yeah. What, <laughs> what, what kind of hypocrisy is this? Is this and yeah. so he gets really condemned for saying when J- JFK was assassinated, that it's, this is the case, this is a much longer comment that he makes of the chickens coming home to roost. What he means is this is a country that dishes out violence, so it will die at the hands of violence. But mm. then he also says, look at the American Revolution. That was violent. That was, that was bloody. Yeah. Even one of our forefather, forefathers, founding fathers um, of this whole American project 
Um, mm. Thomas Jefferson said that the U.S. would go through a revolution every 25 years. Mm. Now, what Malcolm did say, though, that rarely anybody points to is that America was in a very unique position to have a bloodless revolution. And it's convenient for everybody to forget that. Mm. But it's also another issue that emerges, and I think that he would recognize, which is that it is the powers of domination who are dictating for the people resisting that domination Mm. what the most acceptable form of protest is, right? That's what they're obsessed with. You can't kneel. That's disrespectful to the flag. You can't resist your domination with with um, burning up buildings, that's violent. But again, locking up people, taking them away from their families for decades, starving them, putting them in areas of food deserts, making them vulnerable to unemployment, limiting their access to good quality healthcare, that's not violent. Hmm. You know, hmm. So I think this is part of what you know, I don't like to really do this conjecture, but I do think, yes, he would feel vindicated, but two, would remind us, if we just look at the work that we've seen, mm-hmm. of so many things that we have not even begun to learn. Mm-hmm. And especially, as you mentioned, when we look at white male, cisgender, heterosexual person um, reasserting their racial hierarchy, that's celebrated. That's celebrated in pop culture. That's celebrated in politics, right? Uh, We see culmination of that in the White House right now. Um, But when any other person, whether it's the Black community or person of color, a non-Black person of color, when they speak up against oppression or against discrimination targeted specifically at them, they are labeled as violent. That is the irony of what America is going through and what America is trying to, in a way, fight against or maybe reconcile with. But I also wanted to get your take on something that you've talked a lot about, which is police abolition movement. You are a big proponent of it. I was watching one of your talks on this recently. I think you posted something on Instagram. And what I learned was that defunding police is just part of that broader movement, because in my mind, defunding police and police abolition was probably one and the same thing, which it isn't. Can you break it down for us, Metha? And why is America so scared of this? And how do we reconceptualize the notion of public safety? Because I think that's yes. at the heart of how people see it. Absolutely. Yeah, this defund, the people who initiated this movement come mm-hmm. from an abolitionist background. Okay. The leaders who are a part of it. But for some folks, it has been misrepresented or misconstrued as the the ultimate goal reducing police budget so they're not so out of control. Mm -hmm. But for the folks who started this movement, they are part of an abolitionist tradition. And while they know that the non-reformist reform approach to getting the absolute abolition of police requires that they do some things that are incremental towards that goal. Mm. But there are, there are strategic positions that we can take that continue to put us in a situation where we can leverage power over the system versus mm. the system 
continuing to dictate the direction of where the boat sails, right? Hmm. So abolition has been a movement that has existed clearly for centuries. You can connect back to Harriet Tubman and underground railroads as part of abolitionist movement and thinking. And when people hear that word, sometimes they only think of it existing within the historical context of antebellum slavery. Hmm. But with the quote-unquote end of the slave system, which then gets reconstituted as a emerging prison industrial complex Mm. because the 13th Amendment allows for slavery, abolishes slavery in de jure terms, but then allows for the practice of it for, as it says, punishment for a crime. Mm. Then it just gets reconstituted, as I said, as part of the, the payment for doing a crime. So in this moment in the 19th century, what you get is the emergence of new quote-unquote crimes that are enforced, like vagrancy, like wandering around. And for people who are newly emancipated, were formerly enslaved, they don't have jobs, so they were identified as vagrants. They would be put into, as I said, this newly forming concept of prison. Jails had existed, but the idea of a prison doing time for crime and on a mass scale was new. And then, so they created even more and more quote unquote crimes, which were social constructs and were almost specifically targeted to put black people in a cycle of imprisonment, reentry, imprisonment, Mm -hmm. reentry. And so part of that work was creating a police force, right? To be able to do that enforcement. So when we talk about prison industrial complex, there are so many tentacles to the working of that carceral system. And what ends up happening as part of this abolition movement are prison uprisings that go all the way to now. We continue Mm -hmm. to see them. We we hear about um, Alcatraz, Pelican Bay um, in the 1970s with the Soledad Mm -hmm. brothers. There's so many of those moments, but really how the modern version of abolition, which starts around prison abolition, gets consolidated, I guess you could say, or um, gets reformatted Mm. is in the 1990s with people like Angela Davis, Mm. Ruthie Wilson Gilmore, Ruth Wilson Gilmore, and Rosie Braz, who start this organization that is still in effect today called Critical Resistance. Mm. And their work was the eventual abolishment of prisons as we know it. And so part of that imagination includes police. And part of that work has been doing everything we can, as abolitionists call it, to institute non-reformist reforms to start to induct people in this way of thinking and envisioning and re-envisioning how we understand public safety. And unfortunately, it has ballooned to the point of police being called to deal with people with mental health episodes, police being called to deal with people who have been unhoused on the street. Is this what police are supposed to do? A mental health professional should be dealing with somebody who has episodes. A social worker, somebody who specializes in housing should be dealing with Mm. unhoused populations. Mm. That's how we can actually deal with these issues is invest in life-affirming professions and structures that would deal with that because the police are a hammer. They are trained to respond to things violently. 
And so, yes, we have a continuation over and over again of these systems, but the idea of defund the police is a tactic to say, what would it look like if you divest money from a system that is bloated up and invested, reinvested in life-affirming community approaches to dealing with social problems? When we talk about this, and I'm being devil's advocate, what about sure. violent crimes, like yes. murders? What will happen to perpetrators of, say, a murder or more violent crimes? Yeah. So, you know, this is always the number one question that gets asked because mm-hmm. in our imagination, we've been trained to fear each other. Yeah. And we've been trained to also see the police as protecting us from that fear. One thing is that police don't prevent murders. They investigate the murder. They come after the the fact. Somebody gets abused in a domestically violent situation, they come after the fact. Mm -hmm. They can't really, unless there's a very credible evidence, report something that would require a restraining order. Um, And then again, most of the time, people who experience, especially women, sexual violence and sexual assault there's a very low reporting rate because of the process that requires mm. to go through. So what is required is a couple of things. One is cultural shifts around, as we say, rape culture, which is very violent. Cultural shifts on how we deal with what you're talking about, which is some form of accountability mm. for harm that is caused. So we talk about creating systems and structures for harm reduction And there is a really popular movement called transformative justice, which is distinct from restorative justice, Hmm. that seeks to understand the systems that were at play that created the harm. So if Hmm. there is a murder, they would ask, what is the root of that? Why would Hmm. somebody go in and want to murder somebody? We will take something a little bit cyclically easier to understand Hmm. because murder can have a whole range of motivations. Let's talk about child sexual assault, which Mm. is one of the most horrific, quote unquote, crimes, right? Right. For the most part, the people who are perpetrators of that harm have been the victims of or survivors of Mm. sexual assault in their childhood. So what would it mean to disrupt that cycle is to heal the perpetrator and then to heal Mm. the person that they harmed. Mm. in that process. And transformative justice, I would encourage people to look at Generation 5, they've put out a lot of work around this, is interested in a long-term approach towards doing that healing work. Mm. So we have to reimagine our relationships with each other so that they are not based in fear. We Mm. have to reimagine somebody's situation, their social conditioning, their Mm. life cycle, What have they been exposed to that has inclined them towards doing harm, right? Yeah. And there's one more thing, I think one aspect that we have to also look at, which to me is police functioning, dichotomy in police functioning within different neighborhoods in America. So I'll give you an example. I live in, I would say, upper class, affluent, predominantly white neighborhood. So my relationship with police 
is very different, right? Yes. I once called 911 because my security alarm went off. I was alone. I was scared. The guy comes in. He was respectful. He came. He looked around. He was in my house for at least 10 to 15 minutes. He calmed me down. And then as he left, he was like, you know, if something happens, just call us and be safe and all of that good stuff, right? And then I was reading Patrice Cullors Khan's book, When They Call You a Terrorist. And the way she describes her and her brother's interactions with police, Meeta, that was an eye-opener. So for a person like me who is Muslim, who's lived in this country for over a decade, my understanding of police and my interaction with police is so different um, than her understanding of police. So I, I feel like it's important to bring those two Americas together, right? Because people are looking at police from their point of view. I think white America is looking at police through the lens of how they are treated. And I think that's one of the reasons why they do not understand the need for police abolition movement or defunding police, because they don't see the other side. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm glad that you referenced Patrice's book. It's a book I gave to my mother. So that she could also, she's a voracious reader, but so that she could also understand what it means to be positioned in the long history in this country of being part of the Black American experience. Mm. And especially for my family that has a child, my brother, who's on the autism spectrum Mm. and seeing the various reactions that law enforcement have had with him, had he been Black, would he still be alive today? This is a Mm. big question for a Mm. lot of my Black friends who have children on the spectrum. Exactly. They are constantly in fear. I mean, there's, an, there's clearly a level of anybody who is Black who has children and themselves are walking around mm. in this world to live with that deep fear and anxiety of never really knowing whether today is the day. But there's another level of how autistic responses that would instill fear could be met with extreme violence. And I, I've you know, personally seen how law enforcement has, tra- has treated my brother. Mm-hmm. But, you know, there are a couple of things in response to your question. There definitely is two different kinds of citizenships in America, right. or I guess three, uh, if you're undocumented, then exactly. there's that eternal fear of being found or found out or deported. But there is a category of what it means to live in white America Mm. and then to experience the advantages of living in white America. And then there is that category of what it means to be a Black American that can have vastly different interactions and encounters Mm. with different segments, whether it is law enforcement or housing or education and so many other sectors of social life. But I think what what you said is really important. And Patrice had mentioned a story on Trevor Noah, where Mm. the actress, Natalie Portman, who has been a longtime advocate and supporter, a strong one for the work that Patrice has been doing, including Measure R, which passed last March, which is part of the non-reformist reform approach to Mm. abolition. I encourage everybody to look it up. 
Mm. And um, when there was a call to bring in Hollywood around defund the police, she had reservations because, as you said, Mm. her encounters with police had been positive, Mm. protecting her from stalkers, calling and then having requests met with safety. And then she had to sit with what it meant that her comfort around a certain kind of protection for being and moving around in the world as white came at the expense around the intense fear that constitutes the life of moving around this world as a Black person. Hmm. So she eventually reconciled that and then joined Defund the Police Hmm. because she understood that her imaginary or her illusion around safety was on the backs of Black folks. Mm. So how we try to think about this too is really look and dissect the system. I encourage people to look up how much the police chief in their neighborhood makes. From the city that I was born and raised in, the person who has the highest salary of any government employee is the police chief. He makes almost half a million dollars. Mm. (laughs) And then the jump from entry-level police from 40K to the next year, 80, 90K, is Mm. a pay raise that is very uncommon in any other field. So then what you start to look at and identify is that this is a very lucrative job for Mm. somebody who has very little training And I'll tell you something that is even crazier. At the university I was working at, Hmm. entry-level junior faculty, campus police entry-level make more than me. Wow. Wow. So at a place Hmm. where the primary goal is to learn from professors, from faculty, Hmm. those folks are paid less than campus police that won't even solve one of the biggest issues on college campuses, which is rampant sexual assault. Yeah. They won't interfere with that. They will find leftover items that you could pick up at the the campus police office. So I I want folks to really deeply think about the amount of investment we have in a system like that and the logic that we operate with in terms of how we value certain professions and especially around social good right? It Mm. should be more important that we're in an educated populace instead of one that has patrol cars going down Black neighborhoods to give us the imagination of feeling safe. Do you think that compensation is um, structured in a way where it incentivizes them to put people in jail? So it's not very explicit, but what I've been Mm. told by somebody who worked in a DA's office, Mm. they might still be working in one, that I I think getting, now don't quote me on this, you guys can look this up, Mm. but being able to get 100 cases or Mm. 100 arrests or something to, maybe not arrests, maybe it is, I don't know if it's arrests or homicide, you guys can look it up, is... um, the entry level for detective. Hmm. So once you Hmm. do that, then you can get heavily promoted. And so in that regard, there is kind of a formalized informal structure that incentivizes going after folks. And as we've seen with stop and frisk, that is in New York, that was part of the logic Hmm. was 
being able to stop, detain, sometimes arrest, mostly black and brown youth, to be able to justify the presence too of a force Mm -hmm. and the necessity of expanding a police budget. So Mm -hmm. it's not even that there are, and there might be formalized incentive structures, but it's the tactics that are used to have us buy into a logic of needing more and more of them and needing more and more of their presence. When, if you look at like, for example, the history of how mental health is dealt with, with the closing of institutions, mental health institutions, and a lot of them were not great, but Mm. with that had meant that that sort of work around how to deal with people who are having episodes or cannot maintain a job or do not have a family support structure, that sort of social issue got transferred into the work of police, right? So what we're doing now is trying to educate people of how bloated the system is that constantly tries to rationalize their expansion. Mm. So we're already at a state where, as I said, incentive or not, they are going to try to convince you of the necessity for them to prevent any future crime. That's such an interesting conversation and an extremely, extremely important one to have right now. Mitha, I want to shift gears a bit sure. and I want to talk about what you do personally um, to ground down and, and refresh because you're working in activism and burnout is a real thing, whether we acknowledge it or not. And especially, I don't know about your family, but in a South Asian Muslim family, there is no such thing as burnout. There is no such thing as <laughs> depression. Um, you should always be happy and perky, which is I don't know how how we are expected to do that. But how do you take care of yourself? Oh, yeah. I mean, there's a reason your podcast is called Immigrantly. There's a (laughs) intense, there's a cultural drive, but there is also an intense practice that has emerged from our experience with the U.S. and Mm. buying into this notion that our value comes from our commitment, our diehard commitment to our work Mm. and shifting all gears towards that direction. So I still have issues with how much I'm pouring of myself into my work and then the social justice work that I'm a part of and also the desire to produce creative projects. Yeah. So for me, I have had to sit back and reflect on what it means to take time out for myself, but also create firm boundaries around my work. So Mm -hmm. for example, I haven't been as faithful to some of these, to some of these boundaries that I want to create, but I'll say, you know, if this is a work question, do not message me on the weekend Mm. or after six o'clock. And I, also started to have an assistant, which has made things amazing for me. (laughs) I can redirect everything through that. And the other thing is that for most 
people who have seen me in any capacity online, it's probably pretty clear that I invest a lot of work into spiritual embodied practices, Mm. whether that be Islamic practices or grounding every day in meditation and a formal yoga practice, a, a physical embodiment of the asanas. And then also to really connect with nature. That's mm. a big healer for me. I'm so grateful to live in Southern California and have access sometimes to the beach yeah. during quarantine. <laughs> That's been part of the necessary work to do the work, but also sitting deeply and thinking about what it means to commit to abolitionist social mm. justice practices. And the depth of that is reimagining the world, our relationships to each other, our mm. own embodiment of struggle. And what that's meant is to say, how do we not reproduce the cycles and structures of harm that mm. encourage us to overwork, that encourage us to be um, a subject to systems, corporations that don't care about whether or not we live. Uh, You know, I've reflected so much about the American worth structure, they call it an ethic, and the amount of uh, just sitting and listening anecdotally to my women friends of how that manifests in our bodies um, and what that looks like for women friends who have wombs, who want to reproduce and the struggles that they face, the the amount of stress that is required, not just for the work environment, but to exist as a marginalized person within a patriarchy, a cishet Mm -hmm. system, a heteronormative system that wears on your body. And so I'm just constantly thinking about, you know, and looking at other places that have instituted, you know, four-day work weeks or ones that give women who bleed or people who bleed, I should say, a, a day or a couple of days per month that they don't have to come in for work. So those things I've been thinking about, um, and also just products for people who bleed should be free. You know, exactly. <laughs> it's, it's a social good. Why is Viagra free when you have health insurance yeah, and yeah. tampons or diva cups or anything else not? It's just that that's the sort of thing that I, I sit with. And I do have a practice, as I said, and I'm constantly thinking about what it means to not be reproduced in the systems of harm and mm consciously disrupting them through healing practices. Mita, there is so much more I could ask you because I have like a million questions. And I think when you are up for it, and if you have time, we should absolutely do Meta Al Hassan episode 2.0 or something because there is so <laughs> I'm much, down. I'm so, down. so much more to ask. But in the end, how do you see America in this moment of time? And how would you envision and change it for the future? As people who have or see themselves as part of this abolitionist tradition, I love listening to Angela Davis in this moment. She clearly has been struggling through and imagining a different vision for decades, since the 60s, 70s. 
she has been reflecting on how unique a moment this is that a lot of us, I've just been involved in this work since college, so maybe about 15 years. Mm. We never imagined that we could have a public discourse on what it would look like to not only target mass incarceration, which was a new conversation for this moment and to call for prison abolition, but to say on Trevor Noah, Seth Meyers, Mm. that we imagine that we don't need police to feel like we have a public safety system that protects us. Yeah. That is a radical shift claim and shift. Absolutely. Now, Do I think we still have an immense amount of struggle ahead of us? Of course. And is it that easy to defund? No, there are ballot measures that must be put into place. So when Minneapolis Police Department says that it's voting to disband the police or different universities or school districts say they're going to end their ties with police, there's a process behind it. Hmm. But part of that work has been to be able to do a cultural consciousness shift. And so a lot of us who are part of the abolition movement are also creatives. So we've been thinking about what it means to inspire people's imagination to think beyond the confines of this moment. And so Mm. all of this is moving (laughs) at a, a pace that is overdue, clearly, for the centuries of harm that this country has inflicted, not just to genocided, ethnically cleansed Native folks to kidnapped, also genocided and enslaved Black folks. Mm. Also in terms of the century plus of imperialism uh, at the hands of this country. So as we start moving forward and as people within this abolition movement also emphasize that we are about community accountability and transformative justice. I think that we have to start to think about not just um, abolish ICE and defund the police, but what it means to end the military as well as part of a larger system of thinking around how to undo centuries of harm, but to stop the perpetuation of them. So You know, you mentioned Malcolm X um, and also Martin Luther King came to this point towards the end of his life, was seeing how inextricably linked the systems of imperialism, racism, capitalism, they didn't really call out sexism or patriarchy at that point, but how all those systems were interlinked to reproduce each other and how necessary it was for us to think about as Martin Luther King said, how much it costs to kill somebody in Vietnam, which you should look at the speech. It's um, Mm. why I opposed the war in Vietnam. He gave it April 4th, 1967. It's also called the Riverside Church speech. How much it costs to kill somebody in Vietnam, which was a lot. And Mm. then how much it costs to be able to feed somebody in the U.S. Yep. And so those sort of things, those sort of connections are integral and essential in this moment. We have been given such a gift by the Movement for Black Lives to be able to rethink what kind of world we want to live in and what kind of world is possible. 
This was so good, Metha. By the way, where can people find information about you, your work? I wanted to talk about Huck and Hollywood, but I guess we are running out of time. And hopefully next time, if we have another interview, I want to talk about that as well. Is there a link people can go and um, see what it is all about? Absolutely. You can go to my website, uh, www.metha.com. Dot com And then also for the Huck and Hollywood Report, www.huckhaqqandandhollywood, hope you all know how to spell it, <laughs> .org. You can go check out the report there. There's a slideshow and then there's the full report for the nerdy folks who want to get into the 40 pages of content. I've produced around 100 years of Muslim tropes and traps and how to transform them. And feel free to follow me at M-A-Y-T-H-A-A-L-H-A-S-S-E-N, my full name on Instagram, Twitter, any of those places. So this, this has been great. Thank you all for joining Metha and I in this conversation. We hope you come away with an awakened sense of curiosity. Maybe this episode has already prompted you to open up Hulu for Rami, which I highly recommend. Or maybe you'll do more research on police abolition movement. Whatever it is, be kind to yourself. I will leave you with an excerpt of Metha's spoken poetry shared first at a TED Talk. Take care. So crooked and meandering is the story of our love affair. I beg for a vision of the straight path. Sometimes I'm saddled with indignation. Why won't you let my heart break in peace to the dawn calm of silence? Offer me a morning without rubble, shelling, or torture. An afternoon free of hunger, homelessness, or longing. Save me an evening of suffocating uncertainty, chemical attacks, or propaganda. Some days I wake and see your tears in my father's eyes, your hurt in the cold shoulder of my mother and her weighted heart. What part of my world I would trade to see you again, but I, I'm generations displaced. Arabic sterilized of its poetry, forever wandering for home. 